You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Hi there. My name is David Crothers, U.S. Marketing Director for Jolbo Eyewear. If you're not familiar with Jolbo, we're a 130-year-old, family-owned French eyewear company based in the heart of the Jura Mountains. Jolbo specializes in technical, performance sunglasses and ski goggles designed for mountain bikers, alpinists, trail runners, and skiers alike. From the summit of remote Himalayan peaks to the trails of Chamonix Valley, Jilbo is the go-to eyewear for athletes and anyone who enjoys the mountains. Check us out in a retail location near you, or to learn more, check us out at jilbo.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. This episode of The Cutting Edge is something special. We're speaking with Brett Harrington, who this past summer embarked on a series of new routes on the Juneau Icefield in southeast Alaska. This followed a tragic accident that happened in early March when her partner, Marc-Andre Leclerc, and Ryan Johnson disappeared after climbing a new route on Mendenhall Tower. Many days later, it was confirmed that they had lost their lives as a result of an avalanche or accident during the descent. In the aftermath, Brett says she felt called to return to this part of Alaska over and over, culminating in September with this major new route on Devil's Paw, done with Juno local Gabe Hayden. Brett told her story to her friend, climbing partner, and AAJ associate editor, Chris Kalman. All right, well, I'm here with Brett Harrington to talk about your first ascent of... Actually, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. How do you pronounce that, uh, <laughs> the name of your route? Well... I don't even know if I say it right, but I say Sha Taixi. That's beautiful. What language is that? It's in Clinket. Okay, and is that That's the that's a native tongue um from the Clinket people in Alaska, that part of Alaska. Okay, so So I guess west of the Stikine. Gotcha. So um and it translates as heart of the mountain, is that right? Yeah, actually, after the climb, we, um, Gabe and I went to the cultural center. There's a cultural center outside of Juneau, and we found a, a book with all these um, clinket words. Oh, cool. And um, we put together this, because the line that we chose looked like the heart of the mountain. And so we found what would make most sense for this climb. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so the first ascent of, I'll try my best, shot Taixi. Yeah. 1300 meter 511A on the west face of Devil's Paw on the Juneau Ice Field. And that's in the boundary range right between 
sort of on the border between Alaska and Canada, right? Outside of Yeah, it's, it, it's exactly on the border. So like from the summit, you look over towards BC and also towards Alaska. Wow, that sounds incredible. Um, and this was not your first trip up there by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you've already been up there on two different trips earlier this summer, and this is actually your sixth new route in the area. Um, yeah. What What has, is really drawing you to this part of the world right now? Um, so uh, I first went to Juneau in March um, after Marc-Andre died. Um, Mark is my partner in my life partner, mm-hmm. and he was in a, some sort of an avalanche um, descending the north side of the Mendenhall Towers back in March, and so I went there, and um, it was just a really, really, obviously, like an extremely powerful experience to be there. Um, and I've been struggling to be anywhere else. Actually, I've just been called back to Alaska. I feel like. He would want me to be there for some reason. He's directed me to go to Alaska. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so I've been returning to Alaska. I spent most of my summer there um, just exploring the ice cap. I think that's something that Mark really would have wanted to do himself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in that way, I feel it directed me. That's really, really powerful. Um, I read on Planet Mountain that you first envisioned the line last summer. Were were you up there like at that point for something else? No, I first envisioned the line when I was here and I was in Squamish actually. Just like it was, I want to say May, uh-huh. and I was about to. I knew I wanted to go back up to Alaska um, for various reasons, um, and I had heard about Devil's Paw in March, but I completely pushed it to the back of my mind. I didn't want to consider that or even, I couldn't even think about anything else in March besides trying to find Mark. Yeah, of course. So um, then once it was certain that he wasn't coming back, I, I started examining the other mountains in the area and the Devil's Paw is the largest mountain on the ice cap. And it's, a gorgeous mountain and it hadn't had um, any ascents up the west face. It had been the northwest buttress had been climbed by um, these two Austrian climbers, Roger Shelley and Simon Gitchell. But um, the face itself hadn't been climbed. It's super steep looking and from the images you can't really get a perspective on exactly the angle of the mountain. So no one really knew the angle. And I found one picture because I wanted to climb it in mixed conditions because some of the snowfields looked gorgeous and I wanted I thought it would make for a well um suited mixed climb. Mm-hmm. But I skied out there with Caro in um June. Caro North. Caro North, yeah. She and I like ski toured across the ice cap, skied skied one of the couloirs. We skied, I think it was the southeast couloir. Um, and I got a feel for the rock and, and the angle of the mountain. And she and I examined this line that I had found on, well, I had like tried to envision from the images I found online. Caro thought that there would be one impassable section because the, hmm. the rock really steepens up in the lower wall. And we weren't sure if we could get through this like steep kind of sheer looking area without cracks. But I thought 
you know, as free climbers, I thought we could um, get through. Mm-hmm. And so it still wasn't certain that we would be able to get through these steep sections in the lower wall. And also the upper wall has like three tiers of steep rock. Mm-hmm. Um, another question was whether the rock quality was going to be solid enough for us to place protection. I don't think anybody had truly considered climbing that west base. I read online like some guy said it would like make for like some good like steep aid climbing. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, when we actually climbed it, it went free. You guys put up a couple of other new routes on that trip, didn't you? We did, yeah. So it's it was my original idea to climb Devil's Paw, but it's quite far out on the ice cap. Mm-hmm. And so to get a heli drop out there was pretty expensive. And so and with like complete uncertainty of what conditions the mountain would be in, what weather we would find ourselves with, and and like what kind of gear we would need, whether or not we could even ascend it. If it was like a crumbling pile of chops, we wouldn't be able to. So we decided to be more conservative and just climb in the Taku Range, which has um like known no it it's known to be like really high quality rock with like mm-hmm. very few ascents. Mm-hmm. So we just base camp there and after climbing this like beautiful mixed line, she and I did this like really cool mixed line on the South Duke Tower. Um we uh ski toured out to Devil's Paw to check out the mountain and yeah, that was like a four day mission because it's forty miles. Wow. And we didn't, obviously, we didn't plan on climbing it because we'd have to carry all that gear. So we just did, like, a light and fast, like, ski tour mission. And before you and Carol were out there, weren't you out um, in the Taku Towers with Gabe Hayden as well? That was after. So oh, that was after. Car- okay. Yeah, Carol stayed with me um, for three, for a month, I believe. And I, I stayed up there for six weeks. So once Carol left, I stayed for two more weeks, and I went back to the towers with Gabe, Hayden, and we also went to the south side of the Mendenhall Towers and did a, a line over there too. Okay. So um, Carol came back. So Carol left left me and went to Switzerland. Okay. And in July, and then she had planned to come back and climb with me in August. And in August, the weather in Alaska was just raining. So they had no conditions to even go into the mountains. Gotcha. So Carol and I climbed here in Squamish and around BC. Actually, we climbed with you on the Chinese puzzle wall. Right. And then um, Carol left again. To, she had to go to India for this other expedition. And at that point, I felt like weather was going to change in Alaska. I just like felt like I needed to go back up. And so I just booked a ticket and went up. And sure enough, it did. It like changed and that's awesome (laughs) I had like beautiful conditions and yeah it like the Alaskans said that that was very unusual for September they always have rainy September and so it was super cold like you could tell it was early fall and icy and the day we climbed the mountain so yeah Gabe and I just like committed we saw this high pressure window mm-hmm. like the day before we had our bags packed but like it's so uncertain whether or not the window is gonna st- stay or hold its skirt and so we didn't commit until like the day before and then it was like okay here we go we have like three days at least to go in there and so we flew in so early September you fly in so walk me through like everything from there until the moment you're 
standing on top and then back on the ground again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, actually. Okay. So we fly out there and we get dropped off. Um, it was around 1030. And the face is southwest facing, but like primarily west facing because there's this big fin that comes out on the mountain that blocks the left side um, from getting sun. So it was super cold. Like everything was kind of frosted over and icy and it felt like that brisk chill of fall. Mm-hmm. And um, I was feeling exhausted. Hmm. I hadn't, I don't know if I just hadn't slept the night before or like I just felt like a complete lack of sleep. And so if looking up at that huge mountain face with my like complete exhaustion was like not a very comforting feeling. Right. Um, it looked really intimidating to me at that time. And so I just like we had a few days to of weather predicted in the forecast. And so I was like, uh, Gabe, do you mind if I just take a nap quickly? And so I ran over into the tent and like fell asleep. And then I wake up at noon. And at that point, I'm like, okay, like, maybe we should try this. Maybe we should go for it. And Gabe was like super flexible. Like either way, we would be either climbing in the dark or rappelling in the dark. So it was like, didn't really matter what time we started. So we started up and our backpacks just felt super heavy. Like the first pitch was probably only five nine, mm-hmm. but we were moving really slow. It felt aggressive and like each movement felt yeah. like way too heavy. So we bailed uh-huh. <laughs> and went back to our tents um, and unloaded our sleeping bags, thermorest, stove, any gear for a baby kit. We just unloaded all of that. And then we um, decided to just sleep on the ground that evening and then wake up super early. We woke up at 4, started climbing by 6.30 the next morning and planned to do it in a day push. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I I think that takes like a ton of experience and patience to to turn around, you know, like it's so, I find it so hard when I've started up something on some big objective I'm really excited about to like pause and rethink and like change plans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that we did go try it that day because then it like allowed us to know that we weren't going to want to climb it with the backpacks. Like we both like I've climbed with Gabe a few times now and we're both fairly comfortable simul climbing and soloing and moving fast. And so um, I know for me, I can just like go, go, go forever at, if I'm not carrying heavy weight. And I guess he's the same. So yeah, we both kind of committed to like maybe doing a small shiver bivy on a ledge or just like pushing through. So you get up early the next morning. Uh, yeah. Like how early are we talking here? I think we woke up around four and made some coffee and some cereal, mm-hmm. hiked over to the base, which is pretty close from where we had our camp set up, mm-hmm. and then started climbing around 6.30. And it was cold in the morning, and, and our backpacks were still heavy. I mean, yeah. we had ice tools, crampons, we had um, like two ropes, um, a rack. I mean, I don't know exactly, but maybe like 40 pounds. Did you have like of, bolt of kit gear. or? Oh yeah, we had a hand drill with some bolts, um, a bunch of food because we didn't know how long we were going to be on the face for and water. Uh huh. 
and jackets and gloves. Yeah. Yeah. No, so. it sounds pretty heavy. <laughs> and a bunch of pitons because we were right. going to have to repel the face. Right. And so we needed to have a, like a good assortment of pitons to leave behind. It's like this massive mountain. Yeah. <laughs> and it had no wrap line. Yeah. Uh, so we started up and it was mainly simul climbing in the my like I I led the first block and I must have led about six pitches simul climbing and then Gabe took over and he led the second block and we were moving really fast until we got to that one section of really steep wall that Caro and I were uncertain about mm-hmm. before and um Gabe had this pitch and he didn't he couldn't find any protection and it was like this face climb kind of on slopers wow and it was steep like nearly vertical and um so i was feeling like okay well take your time if you need to like search for some pitons or like do what you can to like aid through try and find hooks try and find knife blades whatever um there was another option to get through it but there was like loose blocks Mm -hmm. and so he he kind of like envisioned this face traverse um but needs to um first he thought he would have to like hand drill a little bolt Mm -hmm. but the stance wasn't comfortable enough to do so and then he found this little knife blade piton so he hammered in this knife blade and then committed to this little sloper sequence and mantled up found an anchor And so that was like the first crux. And once we got through that crux, I was like pretty confident that we were going to be able to make it through the upper tiers because the upper tiers of the face seemed to have, from my like analysis of mountains, I knew that I could get through them even if they were steep. Uh Yeah. So then it was like, okay, we're committing to the face and we're already halfway up. Here we go. Super and cool. as we were, as we made it into this like mass, so like after that, the wall's really steep that section, and and then it eases off into this huge bowl, and um, that was where we had planned on bivying. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody, yeah, nobody's ever been into this massive bowl, and it's like the that's where we got the name Heart of the Mountain, the Shatayixi, because it, it is like this like open hollow in the mountain, like a like a a cavity oh, cool yeah so at this point that cavity the heart of the mountains about halfway up the the wall right i think so yeah so we're talking like 650 meters up what time in the day was it like how much time had gone by um i think it was around noon um maybe twelve thirty. by the time we got to the bowl mm-hmm. and then we did some soloing we took the rope off and soloed up so i'm like easier like low fifth class fourth like a lot of like fourth class terrain Mm -hmm. in through the bowl and then this it started to get pretty snowy okay but we avoided the snow and stayed on rock and then at the first tier the rock kicked back into angle and it was like 511 climbing for a little bit yeah so deep climbing tell me a little bit about the grid because (laughs) because <laughs> like it says 511a but i've climbed with you before and i know and like i know by reputation like you're a hard 13 climber and i also know that like 511a can mean any number of things in the mountains um i'm guessing that this isn't like you know like your sport crag version of a of a single pitch of 11a 
was there like a lot of like what you would consider fairly serious, maybe slightly run out 5'11 climbing on this, on this peak? There was a decent amount. Um, I think there would be like three pitches that were considered like, I would consider like 5'11. There was a lot of 5'10 mm-hmm. climbing. Um, and all of that 5'10 climbing is super run out. Um, yeah. The steepest section, which I would, so the crux that Gabe had done on the lower wall, I would, I would rate as 511A, but he, I don't know, like for me, it was like climbing slopers with like techy feet. Mm-hmm. And for him, I don't know if he, he's like way taller than me. So I don't know if he had different feet. I think he did. Um, and then for the upper cruxes that I led, it was kind of this overhanging, like steep corner climbing, like gastoning and placing little wires and into these blocks that you don't really want to fall on. Yeah. That kind of mountain climbing, like mountain climbing where you just don't want no falling pretty much. Like you've got to be like a strong climber. (laughs) You don't want to be a 5'11 climber and be on this mountain. That would be terrifying. Right. And so, and, and like, I'm also, were you guys tagging a pack and hauling it or was the leader also carrying a pack like throughout all of this time? Um, on the steep pitches, we would tag, uh-huh. on the, like most of the mountain, we just both climbed with packs, yeah. but yeah, like there were those few pitches, maybe three or four of them that we stopped to tag. So I led through the first tier, which was probably the, the hardest crux of the route. And then that like eases off into a bench and then it kicks back into another tier and then another tier. And then the upper section, after the third tier of steep climbing, we just put the rope away. Okay. And we soloed. But we were soloing, I'd say, like, pretty challenging climbing, I don't know, like, 5'8 mm-hmm. um, with the packs. It was it was very engaging soloing, I'd say. Yeah, sounds but, like it. <laughs> but exciting. And, yeah, so we did some, like, pretty fun moves there and weaved up to the upper mountain and then nearing the summit it turned to snow and so what what was motivating you to solo that long section on the upper part was it just time related um anything else yeah we move so much faster when we're soloing the Mm -hmm. gear i would say would probably be hard to find and then dealing with the ropes is more challenging right yeah, like if you're not placing a ton of protection anyways, then yeah. simul climbing can be super dangerous yeah. or more so dangerous. And um, then if we're soloing, we can just stay right together in case like any rocks are kicked down. We don't kick it on our partner. Right. And then, um, yeah, Gabe was really comfortable with soloing and I was comfortable with it. So we just chose that for the safer option. Cool. Actually, at, at one point I did like this kind of tricky move and – um, I was like, well, I don't think that we both need to do that move. So I just like harnessed in a long sling and tossed it down to Gabe. And then he just clipped into it to pull a move. And nice. So like you can kind of like improvise like that. Sure, sure. So uh, about what time was it when you reached the snowfields? Uh, it was around 6.30 p.m. Okay. And what time is the yeah. sun going down up there at this time of year? I think at that point it had it was setting around eight thirty. okay yeah so was there any like trepidation among you two like you didn't really have a great bivy kit sounds like 
Um, you knew that you, I mean, you only had two hours of daylight left. Um, like was, were you guys scared or nervous or even just like frustrated or bummed or how are you feeling at that time? Oh man, it was such a beautiful evening. Um, there was no wind at all. The sun was setting, but I felt like super calm. Um, and, but the only thing is that our our like planned descent line, because we didn't have so much, we didn't know how repelling that huge face would go considering like pulling ropes over like loose rock and gravel we didn't want to get hit with our own blocks if we pulled if we pulled the ropes it could potentially release right blocks so we thought like wrapping um roger and simon's line down the northwest buttress would be a safer call okay so originally we thought okay we would rappel down into the steep notch then climb up the other peak, which, and then and then repel their line down that buttress, which is an arete like feature. So then, if you do pull rocks, it's likely to shed down the faces instead of the um, buttress. Yep. But it was getting towards evening, and like to climb back up that other peak, we would have to climb these like steep, icy-looking cracks, like these huge crack systems that were covered in snow. And I just like looked at Gabe, and I'm, I'm like, Gabe let's wrap the face. We can do this. We can just wrap the face. And he's like, okay, good. And so we just committed to wrapping the face. How long did you guys stay up on the summit enjoying that sunset? Oh, not very long. We stayed up there like a few minutes, snapped some photos, but we wanted to start the wraps before it got dark. Yeah, that makes sense. Just to, at least to get off the summit. So we traversed over to this, like, I guess the call then to the north and um, wrapped off the summit via just slinging a, a, a like little mini horn that we dug out from in, under the snow. Mm-hmm. And so the first wrap, the ropes got stuck. Oh, and so no. I climbed, I, I had my mountain boots on. So I climbed back up with my ice tools. And then like, it was just like snow over slab. And I unhooked the the ropes and then like down climb, but like the snow was sliding off the slabs. It was oh, kind God. of nerve wracking. I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, don't slip here. Um, it would like, had I slipped, it would have been terrible, but it was low angle enough that I think I could have caught myself anyway. Yeah. So then we did that wrap. And then the second wrap off like the actual like summit shoulder was completely free hanging. It was this wild wrap that we were like quite far away from the wall itself. And, um, it was gorgeous, and we wrapped into this ice gully below, and I think that was the most beautiful rappel I've like ever done. Yeah, yeah, the photos of that are out of this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Gabe took the first half, pretty much the first half of the rappels, and then I led the second half of the rappels. Um, but we were both like, he would wrap down, place in cams, and then I would wrap down and help him find an anchor. Right. while like he was setting up the next wrap and then like I'd pound in a like little piton or something and then or like find some sling horns and then he'd wrap down and then play some cams and then like yeah so like we never left any cams we always left pitons and and slung nice. slung blocks yeah and it's it's kind of worth noting too that like at least I've I've found that leading these kinds of repels when you're going down a mountain face and and there's no established rap line, I mean, leading that can be pretty exhausting too. Do you feel that way or 
Is it just second nature to you by now? I actually love it. Okay, so this is something that Mar- Marc-Andre was an expert at. Like, repelling mountain faces in the dark was his, like, forte. What? No, he had so many fortes. Right. But this was one of his, like, favorite things. And so I climbed with Mark for so many years, just watching him, like, find little techie placements. He's such a technician. And, um, like, weaving down these faces, like, pounding in little bird beaks and equalizing them. And, uh-huh. and so I feel like he's kind of gifted me with this or like after watching him for so many years and and repelling with mark he's really like passed along that like knowledge i mean i actually love it too that's Um, super cool yeah so i was always like pretty excited to find techie little placements and some parts of the repelling was really compact like once we got into the bowl i started leading and it was getting late now like really late and so I did some wraps, but the the bowl was really compact. The rock was super hard. So like, I we found enough gear in that compact rock, mostly just angle pitons. Like, but it was rare to find like a solid one. I wrapped off a bird beak. Yikes. I wrapped off. <laughs> it was a good bird beak. Like uh-huh. we tested it and yeah. had a backup cam for the first person, and then I wrapped off it second. Uh-huh. Um. And then we were in the bowl and I could feel I was getting a little tired and my eyes weren't finding gear so well. Mm. So um, we're like, okay, let's take a quick nap and then wake up refreshed. Yeah. And so I like lie down, relaxed, like tried to ease my mind a little bit um, into just like being calm. Yeah. But it was so cold I couldn't sleep. And it was like, 3.30 3.30 when we went to bed, so maybe a little bit later, mm-hmm. maybe around 4.30 when we started rappelling again. Yeah, and once we started rapping, my mind was super fresh and super crisp, and then I was, like, on nice. for the rest of the morning. Just kind of, like, it was fun, actually. I liked finding all the anchors, and my mind was alert and awake as the sun was yeah. rising. And so Gabe said he would just, like, kind of nod off at the anchors and wait for me to say, oh, rappel. And then he'd, like, wake up and rappel and then, like, go to the next station and kind of nod off while I went down. <laughs> How convenient for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, I mean, um, yeah, that's how it goes. It's a really starry night, too. It's super crisp and clear. Wow. It's beautiful, actually. Sounds like a really incredible climb. Do you think that um, – like, is it the kind of climb that you think could become like a classic route that a lot of people would really enjoy doing? Or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There are some people that I think would enjoy this line, but not very many. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful. And the climbing is super fun. It's just super adventurous, too. You just have to have like an adequate partner. It's not always the easiest thing to find. Well, uh, on the note of adequate partner, you know, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about Mark. Um, I think, well, I don't really want to talk about Mark. I want to talk about you because I think that anybody that knows you, whether they know you personally or follow you on social media or just pay attention to the climbing publications, I think they know how close you and Mark were. I mean, it wasn't like a casual relationship. You refer to each other as, you know, life partners um obviously losing someone like that is like the most devastating thing you can think of 
And when I look at the way that you've responded to that, um, the way that, like, I guess the way I would describe it is to say you've chosen life. Um, it's just, I find it very inspiring and, and maybe even a little bit surprising. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like, wow, how can someone be so strong? Because you, it seems like as far as climbing goes, you haven't skipped a beat and you've responded to this, um, really tragic incident by going straight back into the mountains and doing a really impressive string of first ascents out here on the Juno ice field. So what, how have you been able to do that? Like what's been the guiding force for you in this hard time? Um, so it's strange. It's a really strange situation for me because yeah, like Mark and I are, he's my everything. And what, like all of his mental power went into climbing and we've been climbing together for years and he's, he's been climbing since he was a child, like young child. And he loves the mountains and he's taught me to really love the mountains. I mean, I always love the mountains too, but he had this vision of the mountains that was so beautiful and all of his energy and mind power went into like appreciating nature. He's so connected with nature and intertwined with it. And like, he's talked to me about, about death. Like we've talked together about, about death and Mm -hmm. Mark wasn't afraid of death. He didn't want it. He was like so careful and calculated, but he also understands that it's a part a natural part of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm just trying to, like he talked to me back in uh, back when Hayden died um, mm-hmm. last September. He, I was in Patagonia. He and I were both in Patagonia together, and I was in the mountains. And he came running into the mountains to find me, mm-hmm. and we hiked out together. And he told me that if something tragic happened to one of us, he was confident that the other one was strong enough in themselves to keep going, mm-hmm. and that he wanted. He wanted me to, like, he loves me so much. Like, I love, we love each other so much Mm -hmm. that we want each other to keep loving life and and to be, like, be ourselves. It would, like, if I was in his position or he was in mine, Mm -hmm. I would just feel, it would be the worst thing to think that I would have, like, killed my partner and my, like, the soul of my partner. Right. It's like, I feel like our love is more transcendental than anything. Like, I really feel his um, energy sometimes. I Yeah, I mean, I miss him so much, but I want I wanted to do things that he would be proud of and things that bring me closer to him. Yeah. Um, and at first, I couldn't even be, I couldn't relax. I had to go straight into the mountains. That's all I wanted to do yeah. is just be in the mountains. Right. And being in town was really hard. I could not be with myself I couldn't be alone I couldn't relax I couldn't think of anything I wasn't eating I wasn't sleeping I was insomniac like I I lost touch with everything but being in the mountains was like the only thing I could do was like just lose my mind in thought and like moving so I was moving at a like really fast pace for a long time um and not recovering so then I did I 
be in the mountains and be okay and like be happy and as soon as I got into the car I would collapse in misery and just like feel that absence like digging into me and every single time I was at home or in town I just was a mess and I still am like I'm trying to figure it out over the past few months I've been like able to like reintegrate myself in this like life of like rhythm so I can read and relax and be home and be present but being alone I still find really challenging Um, yeah and I go through waves of depression yeah yeah so like I think I am depressed do you feel like you can see sort of positive trends I mean it sounds like the way you described um where you were at right after that accident, even comparing that to like when you and I climbed together in August, I, I wouldn't have described you that way, like at the time that we were hanging out. So yeah. from an outside perspective, it seems to me like, um, like you're, you're making strides and kind of getting back into, you know, a more sustainable rhythm. Um, and like, it seems like climbing is a big part of how you're able to do that. Yeah. Climbing is helping me so much. It's like, um, a breath of relief. Mm-hmm. So for example, like in April, I went and climbed that mountain in the Canadian Rockies with, with Rose Pearson. We did the first ascent on Mount Blaine. Right. And that was like, I was like such a mess. I was, I had this one evening where I couldn't even breathe. I was like convincing myself just to keep breathing. Mm. But then I would go climb this mountain and, and feel like I could focus. I could like climbing is so engaging. Yeah. And Mark is such a such like a climber at heart. Like he loves being in the mountains and so I feel like I can kind of disconnect from that like emotional sorrow. It's still there. But I just like I'm not thinking about it, so I pull myself into the present. Yeah. And my my mind is only on what I'm doing at the time. It's like so captivating. That's an, an incredible thing about climbing is that it really does like grab you into the present moment and take you away from the past. And once you relax, any kind of relaxation, your mind will drift into where it's where it's needing to process. And so it's important to have the two. But like when I saw you in um August, I was with Caro, really? uh, Caro North, and Caro has helped me a lot through the, all of this. Like, she's such a good friend and so easy to be around. And she, like, yeah, she's really independent. She'll give her, like, you don't have to, like, ever take care of Caro. She's just, like, so easy to hang out with. And then, um, so I, I think I was doing pretty well in August because I was with Carol, but a few weeks earlier before she arrived, I was a mess. Like I had these few weeks where I was alone. And then, I mean, this past week, again, I got back from Alaska and I've just like, again, had this like relapse of serious depression. So I think it's just up and down, up and down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the question with all that up and down, up and down is, um, you know, what comes next? Like, what do you have kind of scheduled out for the next few months? Or are you trying not to come up with plans? Um, what, where do you go from here? Um, 
so I'm just trying to um, really do what makes me feel happy and content. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of canceling some plans to travel abroad right now. I just want to be at ease. I don't want any pressure. Um, yeah, I can't even. I can't handle pressure. Yeah. And so, like these projects that I've done in Alaska were totally my own vision, no pressure at all. Yeah. If I sent them, I sent them. If I didn't, then great. So, like, I don't feel like big wall climbing is something I want to do because there's so much pressure in big wall climbing. Like, you build up like, oh, you want to send to this space or like climbing in Yosemite. I found right. I find there's a lot of pressure. So, right now, I'm just gonna rock climb, cool. and then hopefully go back to the Canadian Rockies. In, uh, in the winter cool just to keep it easy yeah yeah and see where my uh my heart really feels best well i that sounds like as good a plan as i've ever heard of <laughs> um <laughs> Thanks, Chris. yeah definitely um no i i wish you luck on that and you're you're a huge inspiration to a lot of people and you're a really not just an incredible climber but you know, super intelligent and very thoughtful and you've got a lot to contribute. And so just know there are a lot of people out there pulling for you. Oh man, thank you so much. Thanks so much to Brett Harrington for sharing this remarkable story with us. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tent Maker for making the Cutting Edge podcast possible and to Jewel Bow Eyewear for additional support for this episode. You can see photos from the Devil's Paw Climb at the Cutting Edge website. Just Google Cutting Edge Podcast and you'll find it. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.